beginning session three, John chapter 14. To tonight, we're going to look at confidence in love, overcoming shame. One of those four negative emotions and mindsets that are I've identified in these five chapters that Jesus wants our heart not to be troubled with. Look at John 14, verse 2 and 3. Father, we come before your presence now, even in the name of your glorious, beloved, beautiful Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, I ask you that you would let us see, open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the riches of the glory of being the inheritance that he desires. Father, let us see the riches of the glory of being what he wants. We are his inheritance. Thank you, Abba. Let us see it. Let our hearts be moved by that reality. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we're here on page one, on the uh, paragraph one. We're going to look at a review. I always like to give a four or five minute review of the last week or so. Jesus uh, is commanding in John 14, verse one, commanding us to not allow trouble to dominate our heart and our mind. He says in verse one, let not your heart be troubled. That's actually a commandment. He says, you believe in God, believe also in me. He says in verse 27, I'll give you supernatural peace. But you got to do your part. You got to resist some of the, uh, in, in the way uh, uh, that the word of God describes, you're going to resist allowing trouble just to run rampant in your mind and your emotions. You have to stop and say no. Line your mind up with what the Word of God says. There's human dynamics involved. That's why Jesus says, don't let it happen. I'll do my part. I'll give you peace, supernaturally, when you do your part by resisting those negative thoughts. In this session, we're going to focus on walking in confidence in love. Because the, the emotion and the mindset that we're going to focus on in this session that troubles many believers is the mindset and emotion of, of shame. And I say it's an emotion, but it's also a mindset. It's both and. They kind of overlap. You'll notice in paragraph A, we'll go back up to verse 38. John 13, verse 38. Then John 14, verse 1. And there's no chapter break. It's not like Jesus stops after John 13, verse 38, and says, oh, there's a break right now. He's in the same conversation. And it's important that we read the verse before John 14, 1. And he says to Peter, the rooster shall not crow till you've denied me three times. And Peter pushes back on this. He goes, I'm not going to. I'm not going to deny you. I'll die for you. And he goes, no, you actually will deny me. But... Let not your heart be troubled. I mean, the very first issue after Peter, he informs Peter that he's not as strong as he thinks he is, that he's going to be troubled. And he says, I'm going to give you some truths. And we're going to identify four core truths in John 14, verse 2 and 3, that will help Peter overcome a troubled heart, particularly related to shame. But let's look at this phrase again in verse 1. I want you to pay attention to something because there's a point you can miss here. If you read it quickly, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Then he declares a fact. You do believe in God. You believe in the God of Moses. Now I want you to believe in me. That's the commandment. 
Paragraph B, I give a little bit on this. When he says, you believe in God, believe also in me, he's not giving a gospel appeal for salvation. He's not saying, be born again. They're already saved. But what he's referencing is that many people in Israel believed in the God of Moses, whom they have never seen. Jesus even said it in John 5, you've never seen his form. No one has. And yet many of the leaders of Israel, even the Pharisees, scribes and Pharisees, they believed in the invisible God of Moses. They believed in him so much, they really were very technical, meticulous about all the rituals, and they added a bunch to it because they believed in him so much. There were many things they didn't believe, but they believed he existed and his laws were, were required. But he was invisible, and they had no problem with that. They, it was in their culture. They believed in the invisible God of Moses. The new thing was... He says, after tonight, here's what he's saying. He goes, you're not going to see me. I will be invisible to you after tonight. I mean, starting tomorrow. I will die. And you need to believe in me like you believe in my father without seeing me. And they're kind of like looking at him thinking like, well, what do you mean? He goes, I'm not going to be visible to you. And now you need to, ex you need to see I'm as much God as God the father is, the Old Testament God of Moses. And I'm going to give you, and he's going to give them four core truths in verse 2 and 3. I want you to believe in those truths with the same confidence that you believe in the law of Moses. Though, you're, though you won't see me. I mean, he would appear one here and one there. And, but he insisted that they saw him as reliable and as fully God as the Father is. That's what he was saying to them. And I don't think they're getting it at all. He goes, you got to believe in me in this way. You'll see what I mean in just a few moments. Paragraph C. Well, the, the point we're focusing on tonight, and the one right immediately there, well, he says he's going to die right before in John 13. But here in verse 38, again, I'm going to mention it. In the upper room, he tells Peter, you're going to deny me. Then a little bit later in John 16, still the same conversation, he says, I want, he's talking to the, to the 11, uh, 11 disciples. Judas has already left. He goes, you're all going to be scattered. You're going to abandon me. And they're looking at him like, like what do you mean we're going to abandon you? What's going to happen in the next hours that we would even entertain the thought of abandoning you and being scattered? And then they went out of the upper room. Look right there in Matthew 26. They go down the, the, the valley and then to the Mount of Olives, just a you know, a few moments walk outside the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. He says, I'm going to say it more clearly. Not only are you going to scatter, verse 31 of Matthew 26, you will all be made to stumble. Mean you're going to sin. You're going to stumble tonight, every one of you, because of me. Then he looks at Peter the second time. He goes, Peter, I want to tell you, you're going to deny me. And Peter pushed back again. I mean, this is the second time. The first time was in the upper room. Peter says, no, you don't really understand me. I'll die for you. And now it's the second time at the Mount of Olives. He goes, it's important that you grasp this, Peter. Now, here's the fundamental error that Peter had. Peter had more confidence in his commitment to Jesus than he had in Jesus' commitment to him. He thought, I'm in this relationship because my commitment to you is so strong and so sure. And I, I know that you like me, but I'm really gung-ho. And he's looking at Peter, and in essence, the message, he doesn't say it in words, 
Peter, there needs to be a great shift. You're gonna understand, he's gonna, again, he's gonna give them four core truths in John 14, verse two and three. He says, you don't understand, this, this, this is the takeaway. You're gonna see that my commitment to you is far superior than your commitment to me. And when you see that, you're gonna be overwhelmed with gratitude because you're gonna see that even as you stumble, my commitment to you is reliable and to the end and fierce and passionate even in your weakness. And when you see that and you connect the dots with that, you connect the truth, it's gonna create gratitude in you. And that gratitude for being forgiven and for being loved and cherished even in your weakness that gratitude that Peter's going to have for Jesus is going to spill over in his relationships to other people. And Peter's actually going to be kind towards others who stumble because in the overflow of the gratitude he has that the Lord Jesus gives him, through that lens of gratitude, he's going to view other people's failure differently. He's going to feel differently about them. And there's uh, a number of times that the apostles' weakness shows up in the Gospels. I won't... Uh, give a big list of them. There's five or six verses. It's really clear that they're weaker than they think that they are. Paragraph two, uh, uh, Roman numeral two. Now these four truths we're gonna look at in a moment in John 14, verse two and three, the kind of the focus of the teaching tonight, these four core truths that, he, that Jesus is saying, I'm gonna be invisible, but you have to believe these four truths even like you believe the law of Moses. You gotta believe they're that reliable. You can base your life on them. Even though you won't see me, I wanna anchor your soul and your heart in these truths so that you are equipped to overcome having a troubled heart in the shame that you're gonna face in just a few moments. Well, the, these four core truths, they are what I call the answer for what I believe to be the strongest, most powerful longing in the human heart. God designed us strategically. He designed the human heart, the human spirit, in such a way that our greatest longing is, the, this, this is my language now, you can say it other ways than this, the assurance that we are enjoyed by God, even in our weakness. When a believer grows in understanding of God's heart, Jesus' heart, what he's really like, it creates this growing assurance that Jesus delights in the relationship with us, even though there's areas of our life that he's wanting to change, that he disagrees with, that he's not in favor of, but the relationship itself, he actually delights in the relationship. And there's many verses uh, about this. But a lot of people, they, they think if there's an area that Jesus is not in favor of, therefore the whole relationship he's not in favor of, and that's not how he responds to his people. God created the human spirit with a longing for this assurance. Our assurance that God enjoys us grows. That assurance, and that's really kind of a takeaway for tonight, that we would grow in that assurance, that confidence. Call it assurance, call it confidence. That assurance grows when we gain more and more insight into God's affection. David was a student of God's emotions. You read the book of Psalms, David had more living understanding of God's emotions. Yeah, David was a committed to the commands of God's heart. He was a man after God's own heart. He was committed to obey the commands of God's heart, but he was committed to be a student of God's emotions too. 
He was a man after God's own heart. Paragraph B. So why don't I just make a, a blanket statement? We cannot thrive spiritually. This is a conclusion I've had for many years. If we don't have a growing confidence in God's affection towards us, as sincere believers I'm talking about, even in our weakness, if we don't have a growing, and our, our insight may not be very deep, but we need to be progressively growing in that. And if we're not, I've never seen people have a vibrant, thriving spiritual relationship with Lord if they lack this. They, they could kind of be on fire for a year or two or three and real zealous and go to all the meetings, all the outreaches, do everything. But after a few years, they, the, the passion kind of drains out, so to speak. I don't know, drains is probably not the right word. But God's affection for, affection for us is a declaration of our value, our intrinsic value as a person. The fact that the Genesis 1 God desires us Beloved, that declares your value beyond any other declaration that could be made. The fact that God desires to be with you, he wants you in his family, that's a remarkable statement of how important you are. The fear of rejection, the fear of shame, and rejection comes with shame. The fear that we're gonna be rejected with shame, I think is perhaps one of the most destructive, painful traumatizing emotions a human being can experience. I want to say that, that, that again. I believe that shame and the fear of rejection related to it is one of the most traumatizing, painful, crippling emotions that a believer can have, that a human can have. But in contrast to it, when we have confidence, it's exactly opposite. It strengthens our heart. Confidence that God delights in the relationship, that God is for us, that God has great mercy. Micah 7, verse 18 says, he delights in giving mercy. I, that's one of my favorite verses. He doesn't just give mercy kind of, you know, uh, begrudgingly. Micah 7, 18, he delights to do it. And when we have confidence in that, our heart, our spiritual life and our heart grows strong. When we have shame, it cripples our heart. It injures our heart. When we have confidence and what he's like and how he feels about us. When we stumble, we run to him with an open heart because he, we know that's the only safe place of refuge, even in our weakness, because we know that the way he feels, that's the only place I can go for sure and be fully accepted and loved and enjoyed when he has full knowledge. But if we don't have this confidence, we've, we run from him when we stumble. We don't run to him. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. Now, psychologists and sociologists, they, they distinguish between guilt and shame. And they, there's disagreements, but I'm just going to give you a thought or two to kind of give you kind of a working grid. But again, some camps disagree with each other. But it's a common idea that guilt says when a person is guilty for doing something wrong, for a failure, guilt says what I did was wrong. But shame says who I am is wrong. And they're really different. One is that activity was wrong. What I did is wrong and I need to take responsibility and correct it. The other one says my essence is a person. I am wrong. My identity. I am bad. I am wrong. Guilt is a Again, that's, that, that's a heavy word, but it's meaning I'm owning what I did wrong and I'm gonna take responsibility for it. 
But shame is canceling out. A person with shame, they just want to cancel out their, their whole personhood to write themselves off. And that's the enemy's goal, to get us filled with shame. A guilty person says, okay, I really did do that. I said that wrong thing. I did that wrong thing. I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to repair the relationship. I'm going to rebuild that which I destroyed. Even if it costs me something, I'm going to move towards the situation. But shame is opposite. It avoids people and it attacks people. Shame creates an angry response. Matter of fact, the most judgmental believer, uh, people I know, let's talk about believers, but it'd be unbelievers too. The most judgmental believers that you know are probably the most shameful accused in their own heart. Because if you feel accused and you feel shame, it's really easy to vent it towards others. And so if you run into somebody that's really mistreating you, and I mean they're hitting you and criticizing you, instead of saying, you old bad person you, or whatever you might say, look at them and think, they're probably really hurting with shame and accusation against themselves in their own heart. And you might say, Lord, maybe I could help. Maybe instead of being mad at them that they're mad at me, maybe I could... They got to go to bed with themselves every single night. <laughs> they never get free of it. You might have mercy and say, wow, you know, maybe I could be helpful. Paragraph C. We must prioritize cultivating this confidence in God's affection and God's emotion for us. Meaning we cultivate it by reading the word. We cultivating by when we feel uh, shame and condemnation. We say, stop, no, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to let this trouble dominate me. I'm going to say no to it, and I'm going to speak the word of God, what is true about me. And if you do that consistently, the peace of God will come in, and that's what actually transforms you is the peace of God. But he wants you to put a no, a stop, a resistance to the negative thinking. To the thinking that disagrees with what he says is what I mean by negative. It disagrees with him. Because what happens, the most natural, normal thing for a human being is we get these negative thoughts in our mind, the negative emotions, and it's like a, a rushing river. It just carries people down the way for a while. And a lot of believers, they just go with it for a few days or a few weeks, just hammered, real bad emotions, real bad thing. Ah! And then Jesus says, no. Stand up, speak the word, and don't let that trouble dominate you, and I really will intervene with peace. Maybe it won't all go away immediately. Maybe uh, it will be a, a reprieve here and there, but the peace will grow over time. You wait and see. And it's not like the peace comes and then it's permanent forever. I have found in my experience I have peace, and then some days later I'm troubled again. And he says, the Lord would speak through these passages, don't let that trouble dominate you. Speak my word even over your own mind and heart. And then the peace restores again. A lot of folks, they just believers, they, well, just Lord, give me peace when you want to. He says, no, I'm going to give you peace when you take a stand and let not the trouble dominate. So we got a role, we have a role, and the Lord has a role. Paragraph D, and I'm just saying it again. What do we do when our heart is troubled with shame? We do the same thing uh, when it's troubled with the other negative emotions and mindsets. I've identified four different emotions and mindsets in John 13 to 17 that are clearly uh, uh, in the conversation. Anxiety, 
fear, shame, and betrayal. Those are four mindsets troubling the disciples. And Jesus is saying, believe what I say and overcome those four things. But this one tonight, we're, locked, we're focusing on shame itself. What do we do when our heart's troubled with shame? It's the same we do when we have anxiety, fear, or, or the bitterness of betrayal. We have to realign our mind to agree with what God says. Look what Paul, Paul says it. Here's Paul's language. He says in Philippians 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. That's the same thing as Jesus is saying, do not be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. He's saying the same thing in a different language. I mean, different phraseology. So Paul, do not be anxious for anything or do not let your heart be troubled. He could have just as easily said. And he gives us the key. Everything by prayer with thanksgiving. In other words, get into conversation with God. And you're not thanking him for the trouble. You're thanking him for the core truths that he has made known to us that help deliver our hearts from the trouble. I've heard preachers say we're thanking him for the trouble because we just trust like God. I don't think that's what he's talking about. We're grateful for the core truths, meaning when shame comes, we say, Father, it's this phrase. I mean, I use this almost every session. I, I share this little, this little sentence I've used for many, I mean, for some decades, actually. When I run into a truth about God or his promises towards his people, I read the truth instead of just reading it and saying, well, praise the Lord, that's cool, you know, underline it. I stop and I say, Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you desire to be with me. Thank you, Lord, that you've prepared a place for me. Thank you, Lord, that the Father's house exists and you established it. Thank you that you did that. And I say, thank you, show me more. Thank you, show me more. And if you will, if you will cause biblical core truths to get into your conversation with the Lord, not enough just to write it, not enough just to like, wow, that's amazing, but actually talk to God, thank you, show me more, and you will many times add more phrases and more sentences, but that's my introductory, I just, I've used it for you know, some decades. You know, God so loved the world, thank you that you love me in the world, thank you, show me more. And then often, another phrase or two will go out, I'll say it and it will inspire my heart sometimes, sometimes it won't. But you wanna get these truths into conversation with God, everything by prayer with thanksgiving for those core truths or those core promises. Thank him and ask him to show you more. And then he says in verse seven, if you do that, just like John 14, the passage we're looking at, Paul says the peace of God, it will guard your heart. Did you know that when peace, and even a little bit of peace, guards your heart, that's your emotions in this context, Sometimes your heart, it's a little bigger than that. But here, guard your emotions and guard your thinking. Again, many people, believers, sincere believers, they get these wild negative emotions and wild negative thoughts, and they just let that, that rushing river of negativity carry them for a couple days or a week or two till it kind of runs its course, and they go, wow, that was warfare. And the Lord says, no, that's just humanity, but you, got, you have an answer. But the, actually, the answer is in your mouth. Say what I say about you. Say what I say that you should believe. You say that, 
and you'll find peace will actually guard your emotions and your thinking. You will have a reprieve and some of that heightened negative stuff. You don't have to let it run its course for a few days or a few hours or even a few weeks, whatever. Paul said it another way in Romans 12. We, I've used these verses almost every week. You'll be transformed in your emotions by renewing your mind, lining your mind up with the core truth that God said to believe. Let's look at uh, top of page two. So we're gonna look at these four verses, these four core truths. Three of these truths are related to what Jesus has done or will do. Three of these truths are the what that God has done or will do, and one of these truths are the why he did the what's. She's gonna give us three what's and one why. Why behind the what? First, he says, I mean, this is remarkable. Paragraph A, in my father's house, he goes to Peter. He's looking, I, I have no doubt, he's looking right at Peter. You're gonna deny me, but don't let your heart be troubled. And the first thing he says is so surprising. He says, anchor your thinking in the reality that I have with my father, we have, we're the architect and builder of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the Father's house. It was in our heart and mind to create this for you. And Peter could say, well, aren't you talking about me being afraid of denying and having personal failure denying you? What are we talking about eternity for? Anchor yourself there first. I mean, I just don't, I don't know very many pastors or counselors that if somebody was troubled with shame, they would go right to the new Jerusalem in the Father's house. That's truth number one, that they actually, says in Hebrews chapter 10, I mean chapter 11, verse 10, that God is the architect and builder of that city, the new Jerusalem, which is the Father's house. So we, that's the first thing, what God has already established. The Father's house exists. Point number two, core truth number two. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and he means the cross. We talked about that last week. But the idea, it's the strength of the word is the word prepare. He is saying, I am gonna do something so perfectly, I'm gonna accomplish it with such success, it's gonna be so reliable, you will be utterly prepared forever by the work that I do, and nobody can undo it. That's, I'm going to the cross. I'm gonna make a way for you. That's the second what I'm gonna do. Then the third what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna come for you. I'm gonna come for you. And in the main thing he's talking about here is the second coming. But we find in, I have this in the notes, in John 14, 23, right here in this chapter, he's also gonna come to them after the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit, and he's gonna communicate with them. So he comes to us spiritually now in this age, but he's gonna come to us physically at the second coming and put it all together. So we're gonna have the spiritual, he comes to us, and then the physical at the resurrection with his physical resurrected body, and we're in the Father's house, and he brings the Father's house down to the earth. In New Jerusalem, it says it three times, will descend out of heaven to the earth. And we will live with resurrected bodies in the New Jerusalem, in the Father's house. So fact number one, the Father's house exists. Core truth number one. Core truth number two, I'm going to the cross to secure in a reliable, successful, permanent, final way your place in that house. I'm paying the debt for you. It's final. It's done. This time tomorrow, I would have cried out, it is finished, and it's finished forever. And that's a fact you can count on. 
And number three, core truth, I am coming to you by the Spirit between now and the second coming, and I'm coming to you in the sky in a physical body, and we're gonna live for billions of years in face-to-face communion forever. That's who you are, and that is your story. Peter, don't be troubled by your shame, but trust in my heart for you. Now he's gonna give us a why behind those three what's. Why is there a Father's house? Why is he going to the cross? And why does he wanna come to us? This is indescribably glorious. He says, because I'm gonna receive you to myself. I mean, this is almost impossible to exaggerate the glory and the privilege. You what? I'm gonna receive you to myself. I mean, we're talking about the Genesis 1 God who became a man, who came down to the earth. They're stumbling and failing. He says, I'm coming after you because where I am, there I want you to be with me all of my days. I desire you, Peter, more than you desire me. I am more committed to you than you are to me. So there is the fact of the Father's house, the fact of the accomplished salvation, going to the cross, paying the debt, the fact of me coming to you, and the why? So that I am always with you, that I want you with me. Peter, I want you to, like you believe in God, the God of Moses, you believe in the Old Testament God, believe in me that these core truths are as real as the truths that you were taught in the Old Testament. Of course, he's talking to the twelve. Now, like, I, I love to just repeat this because you just can't say it enough. I have here in paragraph A, I encourage believers to say these kind of things like the Father's house. Thank you. Father Jesus, thank you for the glorious privilege of the Father's house. I mean, when's the last time, I'm not saying this to make you feel bad, but when's the last time you've actually said to Jesus, thank you that the Father's house exists? that it was in your mind that there would be a Father's house for us with many mansions. Thank you. Number two, thank you that you're preparing a way, a final, complete, successful, reliable, eternal way that can't ever be undone. Thank you. Thank you, and then thank you for coming to me by the Spirit in this age and even in the, in the physical in the, at the second coming. And then I love to add the phrase, show me more, Lord. Show me more of these things. We want to get these truths into our mouth when our heart, when, we want our, when we're obeying the command, don't let trouble dominate your heart. And he gives these four truths right off the bat and says, this is your beginning point. Paragraph B. Now, I want you to note this. This is where Jesus begins. This is the point of truth he emphasizes first when he's teaching them to overcome a troubled heart. I mean, what pastor or counselor or analyst or psychologist would ever begin a person has a troubled heart of anxiety, fear, shame, and the first point they make is the Father's house, the eternal Father's house. Like, really? That seems a little pie in the sky. Jesus says it's not. You get anchored in that truth. You will view your life through an entirely different lens when you see this is your story, your inheritance, and how I feel about you. It's remarkable. Top of uh, paragraph C. Now he makes this big statement. I go to prepare a place. This is massive. I think this is one of the most monumental statements that Jesus made in his whole three and a half year earthly ministry. It doesn't seem that big to them. 
He's told them on three occasions on his way to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And, and they just, they couldn't even grasp what he meant. You can't die. You're the Messiah. You're going to deliver Israel from Rome and usher in a worldwide kingdom. You can't die. That is, that's not possible. There's too many Bible verses that say you rule everything. Well, there's Bible verses. Isaiah 53 said, I die too. Well, anyway, they couldn't get that. But he told them three times, at least three times, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. But he's never told them why he's going to die. It's the first time. This is massive. He goes, I'm going to prepare a secure, reliable, eternal place for you in face-to-face communion with my Father in my presence forever. I'm preparing that for you through my death. And they're going, what? I mean, I just think, don't think any of this makes sense to them. But it makes sense now. It totally makes sense now. They thought, you know, I'm going to go prepare my Father's house they're probably thinking, you know, because he went in the temple and he rebuked the, the, them at the temple, cleansed it. And, and then he said, every stone in this temple is going to be torn down. He just said that on Tuesday. Here it's Thursday. They're probably thinking, well, maybe he's going to go to another area of Israel and build another sort of temple or something, his father's house, because he called the temple his father's house. They're not grasping what he means. They're not grasping it at all. So he's told them I'm going to die in Jerusalem, but now he's telling them why he's going to die. Because it's for you I'm preparing a place. And why am I doing that? I want to be with you. Why would a God as powerful, as beautiful, as interesting, as fascinating as you want to be with somebody as weak and boring as me? Because that's who I am. That's the God I am. You just don't understand me. But let me say it again. Believe also in me now. Though you don't see me, after today, you won't see me. I mean, he made a couple of resurrection appearances, three of them to, to the disciples, or maybe more, but at least three that are recorded. But by and large, they have to believe in the invisible promises, just like we do. This is remarkable. So when he says, I go to prepare a place, that's such a massive statement he's making. I'm going to prepare a place for you that's secure and final and completely sufficient. And the place that he had to go was the cross to die, for, to atone for their sin, to pay for the price for their sin in the, in the court of God's justice. He had to bear the wrath of God in their place to remove every obstacle between them and the Father. They didn't understand that at all. I don't believe at all. I think it was after the resurrection, and I mean, after the Holy Spirit was given, and they had different uh, revelations from the Holy Spirit, they began to understand what was going on. But Paul said it the clearest right here, 2 Corinthians 5. I mean, this is really graphic and clear. For he, the Father, made him who knew no sin. Who is him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, of course. God the Father, catch this, made him to be sin. What? He made the innocent one, took the role of the guilty, so that the guilty ones, you and I, could take the place and the position of innocence before God as a free gift. This is staggering beyond human almost comprehension. The innocent one became guilty. So that the guilty ones 
could have the privilege of being innocent before God. Here's why he did it. Look at the 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I mean, it's just like, what? This is staggering. It's mind-boggling. So that we, weak and broken people, as a sheer gift of God, we would become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, when you receive Jesus, he gave you his righteousness as a gift. He prepared a place for you. But why did he do it? Because he wants to be with you. He didn't do it just to have free workforce in heaven forever. He did it because he desires you. He desires the relationship. So therefore, paragraph C, we're still here. We must not let the trouble of shame, a shame trouble our heart. In light of everything he's done for us, Jesus says, don't let shame rule your heart. Romans 8, verse 1, the famous verse, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now I'm talking about, in context, sincere believers. But I'm not talking about mature believers. Oh, and they're included as well, of course. But sincere believers. They have a genuine yes in their spirit. I want to obey you. And when they come up short in sin and they stumble, they don't look at it and say, well, you know, boys will be boys. We do, you know, what everyone's doing it. So what's the big deal? No, they know. They declare war on it. I mean, they set their heart and say, no, that is not okay with me. They might stumble 50, 100 more times over the years in that. But they rise up. They go, no, no, that's not okay with me. I am yours and you are mine. And I stand before you. Well, by the gift of righteousness, you prepared a way for me. You've prepared it. It's already done. And you did it because you desire to be with me. And I'm going to believe you. And I desire to be with you. By his death, he qualified us. It says that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. You can just read that later. Is that By his death, we are qualified we are made cool. Can you imagine people like us are qualified to live in the Father's house as a free gift? And Jesus, the next day at the cross, he would declare it with prophetic certainty. It is finished. And that's what he meant is I'm going to prepare a place. It will be finished very soon. It will be a fact that will never, ever be undone. Now, what a stunning declaration. We will dwell together in the Father's house forever. Paragraph D, just a real quick overview of what's going on here in these verses here. Why are we confident? Why are we gonna have this assurance so that we're not overwhelmed with a troubled heart or we're not a slave to a troubled heart? Trouble, having, you know, dominating our mind and emotions. Again, so many believers, they live that way and it's like, no, you don't have to do that. You really don't. Why should we have confidence to overcome these troubled emotions and troubled mind uh, uh, thought patterns. Because, real quick, paragraph D, because of what he did, verse two. Because of how he feels, verse three. And because of who he is, verse four to 10. Of course, we're not gonna look at verse four to 10, but in the weeks to come, we're going to. Those are the three reasons why we have confidence. What he did, how he feels, or why he did it is another way to say it, and who he is. Paragraph one, what did he do? Jesus highlights, I mean, uh, two different things in verse two. 
Jesus is the architect and builder of that city. Well, him and the Father and the Spirit, I don't like you know separating who built it, the other ones watch. They all did it all together. But in Hebrews 11, he, it's called uh, the Word of God has created the worlds, and the Word of God is the builder and the architect of that city. He didn't have to do that. That's amazing. The Father's house exists because of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and, and their wisdom and their eternal counsel. And then the next thing in verse 2 is that I'm going to a place to prepare it for you, which is the cross. This is remarkable. Paragraph 2, or number 2 here, how does he feel? I mean, this is fantastic. He goes, I'm going to receive you to myself. I've already said this, but I just want you to really get it to where I am, you will be. That's why I'm preparing a place for you. I'm not just preparing a place for you because I want an eternal workforce of servants in my kingdom. I want a family. I want a bride. I want you to be with me forever. He desires us more than we desire him. And that's staggering to us. We're thinking, oh, Lord, don't write me off. And the Lord says, no, stay in the conversation with me. Why would I go prepare a place? Why would I establish the Father's heart? Why would I come again if I don't want you? I don't know. It just seems like I'm not that wantable, you know? I don't know. It just doesn't seem I'm just bad. And the Lord says, no, line up with what I say about you. Paragraph two, our confidence in God's affection grows as we understand what he did on the cross, but more, not just what, not even more, but in addition, why he did it. We have to thank him. I mean, again, when's the last time you've used this core truth in verse three and said, Jesus, thank you that you want to be with me. Like, really? Thank you. Wow. That just kind of bounces off my brain. I mean, who you are, you want to be with me? Because verse 4 to 10, we'll look at in the weeks to come, he is one with the Father. I mean, the man who's saying, I want to be with you, he's one with God the Father. He revealed the Father to human history in his day, in his ministry there. We need to speak these truths back to the Lord. Thank him for them. Ask him to show him more. We need to speak these truths to other believers because believers all around us are are just sinking in despair with troubled hearts. But these four core truths must be laid hold of by others. You love them and care about them. Get familiar with these four truths more than just the introductory idea. But get familiar with it. Grow in understanding and get others to buy into this. I call these four truths, they're mountain truths. There's a mountain of implications, but these four phrases, they're gigantic implications. He's just whispering it, and he says, we'll unpack it to you by the Spirit, of, you know, throughout uh, history here. Top of page three. I think they had no idea the magnitude of what he was saying to them in verse two and three. They had no idea the magnitude. He's going to die as a perfect man, filled with love. He's going to die to accomplish eternal salvation for weak and broken people. Anyone can have it for free. What? Really? I mean, that is, that is just beyond exaggeration. You just can't, it's beyond anything we can grasp in its fullness. This is so big, we can never lose sight of it. Matter of fact, uh, Paul uh, said it in Galatians 6, 14. He goes, I glory in the cross. And what happened? I never lose my fascination 
with that man and what he did for us on that cross. And then I have the passage here in Revelation 5. I mean, for all of eternity, the magnifying this man for his shed blood on the cross. We'll be singing about it for billions of years. We'll never, ever exhaust the gratitude and fascination we have with this reality. Meaning, let's get into it now. Let's not wait till the age to come to start really locking into this. This is massive. Roman numeral four. Well, he prepared a way for his people to be with him. He says again, I'll come to you and receive you to myself so that where I am there you will be also. Paragraph B. When he says I'll come again, there's three different applications in John 13 to 17, these five chapters. Three ways that he comes. The major way is at the second coming. That's the big coming in the sky. The one that he talked about two days earlier on Tuesday in Matthew 24, uh, verse 29. He goes, I'll be there in the sky and everybody will see me. And they know what he means. But he also means, and he's going to develop it just a few verses later. In, right there in John 14 and verse 23. I'm going to come to you by the Spirit. Not just at the end of the age. I'm going to come to you now. And you're going to experience the Father's house spiritually in communion with me before you live in it physically forever and ever. And then they talked about coming to them right there in John 16, meaning I'm gonna, he appeared to them right after his resurrection on several occasions. Okay, paragraph C. This phrase, the desire, the emotion of God. He says, I'm gonna receive you to myself. And then a little while later, you know, maybe a few moments later, an hour or two, who knows, in John 17, he's it's in the same evening. He just gave the teaching. Now John 17 is his prayer. He's not talking to them. He's talking to the Father, but they're listening to him. And he says this fantastic statement. It's, to, it's why he's going to prepare a place, why he's going to the cross to prepare a place. He said, so you could be with me in John 14, but here's John 17. He says it a little bit different, even stronger. Here he is just moments away from sweating drops of blood in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just, the, that's, that's just, just a minute down the road. Maybe an hour or two, who knows. But right before there, he goes, Father, I desire that they be with me where I am. I mean, here he is praying, and I mean, he's about to enter into the anguish of the reality of his suffering. But he goes, I desire. I can just imagine, Father, I desire her. I want her with me, my bride. I don't want to rule the nations alone. I want to rule it with them. I want them to be with me. I mean, this statement is just, it's so dynamic. It's almost impossible to grasp the full meaning. I love the verse in Song of Solomon where the, the bride talks about, she goes, I am my beloved's. And she made this declaration. And spiritually, it'd speak of King Jesus, but she was speaking of a of a King Solomon, the king's desire is for me. When this truth touches us a little bit, his desire is for me. It's like, really? I mean, we only can get a little bit of that. Just like, really? Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, the prayer we pray all the time at IHOP, Ephesians 1, verse 18. He says, oh, Lord, well, verse 17, Lord, release the spirit of revelation. Verse 18, they would experience, they would know by experience the riches of the glory of being Jesus' inheritance. 
Beloved, the riches of the glory of being who he wants. You are who he wants. Look at yourself. Why does he want you? Why does he want me? Why does he want the others? Because of who he is. It's because of his personality. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. His heart is so different than anybody else's heart. That's why he wants us so much. Paul said, oh, that we could see the riches of the glory of being the inheritance, being what he wants deeply. And so we pray, Jesus, I want to see what you see. I want to feel what you feel when you look at me. Jesus, I want to see what you see and feel what you feel when you look at me. Paragraph D. Well, this, that, where I am, you may be also. That's the high point of this revelation. It's the why behind the what. The what is, he's established the new, the new Jerusalem, I mean the Father's house, the new Jerusalem. The what, he went to the cross. The what, he's coming back. Why? To be with us. This truth declares our essential intrinsic value. Beloved, you know why you're valuable? He wants you. That makes you valuable enough. He wouldn't die for angels, but he would die for you. He wants you. This statement also tells us what he contends for. He wants us close together. This statement tells us what Satan is attacking. Satan does not want us to enter into this. Look at Hebrews 10. Instead, of the, it says in the New King James, the word boldness and full assurance, but I, I put the word confidence as the same thing. We have confidence. Do we? I mean, we do if we take hold of the word. If we just let negative emotions run with us, we see our failure, we just, oh, I'm just so bad, whatever. No, we resist it and we say what God says. We have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies. That's the Father's house. I mean, it's that. I mean, there's more to say to it than that. But we have confidence to enter in by the blood of Jesus. It's a new and living way. Here it is, verse 22. Draw near with confidence. Draw near with confidence. Beloved, don't be content to be at a distance. Well, I really messed up last week and yesterday, and I don't read the word. I'm, I'm, God's boring to me. I mean, I love him, but he's boring, and the Bible's boring, prayer's boring, nothing fits, it, everything's bad. I'm just going to wait this thing out. No, don't be content at a distance. He wants you near him. This is the truth in verse 23. Look, hold fast this confession on your lips. This is your testimony. Instead of the word confession, your testimony. Without wavering, this is what you say. This, without any wavering, I'm going to draw near. That is my testimony. That's my statement. Paragraph F. Satan's greatest weapon in this age is accusation. Well, you could say fear in one way, lies, but accusation, I think, is probably, you don't have to pick one over the other. He accuses you to you. He gets you to buy into lies about how God has written you off, that you've gone too far, and it's too late, and it's no, there's no new day tomorrow. He gets you to believe lies about you, to accuse yourself. Then you are easy prey to speak accusations against others. Because if he can get you into accusation against yourself, you'll have no patience with the failures of others that bother you. you just, it'll, be, it'll just flow out so easy. 
He wants to put his accusations in your mouth against yourself and in your mouth against others. Top of page four. How do we respond? I'm just gonna do this real rapid fire here. How, I mean, how did Jesus respond? Why do we care about how he responded? Because Malachi 3, 6 and Hebrews 13, several places, God never changes. So whatever he did to the apostles, it's a picture, it's a guarantee, it's a reliable model of how he's gonna respond to us. What he did to them, and I could give you a handful more verses of how they failed besides just stumbling that night, but I don't wanna take time to do that. This tells us how he responds to his servants that stumble and fail. Paragraph A. Again, I just have a little rapid fire here. That very night, Peter stumbled, and all of them stumbled. He spoke lovingly to them. He called them his friends. He prayed for them. He spoke words of life over them. Each one of these truths, and I could put more verses than these. I just wanted to put a few. They're like, every one of these truths here is like a missile destroying Satan's lies that come and accusations that come to hold us into bondage. Here they're gonna fail. Jesus says a few moments later, you're gonna bear fruit. You're not, it's not, uh, you're not disqualified. You're gonna be a fruit bearer. But I thought we're gonna fail by, by, you know, the next day they said, no, we're out of the race completely. He goes, no, no, you're fruit bearers. He spoke that over them knowing they would fail, but he goes, this is your destiny. The enemy wants to convince you you're disqualified and it's over. And it's not true. He's called you to bear fruit. Number two, paragraph, verse nine. He says, I love you in the same intensity the Father loves you. I mean, the Father loves me. I love you in the same intensity the Father loves me. And tonight you will fail. But this truth, the way I feel about you, is gonna cause you to recover. They're going, well, we're not gonna fail tonight. He goes, yeah, you will. This time tomorrow, you'll know how important what I just told you was. Speak it back to me. And beloved, I don't care what stumbling you did this month, last month, this week, next week. You repent of it and you say, you love me. Thank you. You love me like the Father loves you. Show me more. This is my testimony. This is my story. I'm lining up with you and I'm not going to let my heart be troubled. The next thing he says, a few verses later, verse 11, he says, my joy will remain in you. Beloved, there's life after failure. The enemy tells you, no, he lies. You went too far. It's too late. The opportunity's passed. Jesus said, no, there's remaining joy that's gonna be a part of your lifestyle. Next day, they were weeping. They were so broken after that. He says, joy, say this back to me, that my joy will be in you. Thank you that your joy will be in me. Thank you, that is my story. Thank you, that is my future. Joy and peace, okay? Doesn't feel like it. The Lord says, no, line up with me. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't be carried or rent down that river, that dark river, that raging river of darkness. Next verse 12, you love one another. He says, I'm gonna raise up communities all over the earth where people believe in my truths. They only not only believe them for themselves, they're support systems to other people who fail. Because they love one another. He's telling, love one another. But all of you are going to fail tonight. Love those other failures like I love you. I mean, that's the context, actually. And so it's over, and they're looking at each other saying, hey, let's say what God says and do it together. 
And then he says, this is just almost un unbelievable. He goes, you're my friends. Wow, well, they, we're gonna deny you and they're gonna fight and argue about who's the greatest. They did that a number of times. In Galatians chapter two, Peter, I mean, a couple years down the road as a chief apostle, he, was, he stumbled in the fear of man and hypocrisy. Him and Barnabas, chief apostles, and Paul corrected him and said, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. It's the fear of man. What are you doing? You're like, oh my goodness, I did it again. I just keep stumbling. Paul in Romans chapter seven, verse 18 and 19, he says, I do things I wish I didn't do, and the things I wish I did do, I don't do. And the Lord says, you're my friends though. That's the truth. Thank you. When's the last time you thanked Jesus that he sees you as his friend and you said, Lord, show me more. Show me more. Well, look at paragraph B. Then a, an hour or two later or whatever, Jesus prays for him. Well, if he's praying for Simon Peter, you know he's praying for you because Romans 8, 34 says he makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7, 25, he lives forever to make intercession. He's making intercession for us just like he did Peter. But look what he says to Peter. Not only am I gonna pray for you, Peter, because Satan's coming after you, but look at the two phrases he said at the end of verse 32. He goes, you are gonna return. He spoke words of life. He didn't say, you old hypocrite, you loser, you hopeless hypocrite. I never could count on you anyway. You know that? He goes, no, no, opposite. You will return. Peter's thinking, well, I haven't stumbled. What do you mean I'm gonna return? He goes, these words will matter to you. I'm speaking words over you. And he's speaking those words to people in this room and on the web stream right now. You will return. You will recover. You talk to him. Don't draw back and run away. Talk to him. Enter into the conversation. You will return to your first love. Not only that, you're not disqualified. You're gonna be anointed to strengthen the brethren. You're gonna have a ministry that's important to touch other lives. Peter goes the next day, I'm sure he's weeping, he's broken, like, I can't be a help to no one else. He goes, yes, you are, I prophesied it to you last night. You, well, Jesus has died by this time the next day, but he, he tells him, you're going to be used of God. The enemy wants to tell you, you're not recovering, you're different than everyone else. And even if you did recover, you're so disqualified, you'll never be used to strengthen others. Well, some days later, when they're up in Galilee, because Jesus is appearing here and there off and on for 40 days. This is towards the middle or the end of the 40 days. Simon Peter, he's fishing all night. He's been fishing all night. And you know why he's fishing? He's not fishing for uh, recreation. You don't fish all night with toil for recreation. He's fishing all night because he quit as an apostle. Yeah, I, I can't do this. I'm a loser. I'm going back to be a fisherman. I, I can't be a leader. I can't be trusted. He goes up to Galilee. He gets his fishing boat. He jumps back in the business. He's out there in the water. Jesus appears, his resurrected body, but he's on the side. John chapter 21. And they don't know who he is, and they go, he goes, hey, hey, you guys. He goes, throw the uh, net on the other side. I said, what, what are you talking about? No, we've been all night. There's nothing. This is exactly what happened three years earlier in Luke 5 when Peter and Jesus first met. First met. Peter worked all night. And Jesus said, throw your net on the other side. And Peter's like, what? This is, you know, we're John 21. What do you mean? He throws it on another side, 153 fish. 
And there's a reason for that. That's not my point right now. But there's lots of ideas why that number is mentioned. And Peter throws it, has the fish. In other words, Jesus says, I'm supernaturally confirming, Peter, what we did three years ago, back in Luke 5, you are a fisher of men. I'm reinstating you in leadership, even in your weakness and failure. Well, it's only been a few weeks since I failed. I, I can't be in leadership. I can't be trusted. I'm calling you in leadership. But not only that, look at verse 15. Feed my lambs, verse 16. Tend my sheep, verse 17. Feed my sheep. The three times Peter denied him, Jesus commissions him to leadership three times in a row. Says, no, we're in this together, Peter. Like, what kind of God would do that? At least put me in the penalty box for a couple years. Let me prove how sorry I am. No, I want to prove I know you're sorry. I know your heart better than you do. I want to prove that I'm more committed to you than you are to me, and I want to prove that I desire your presence more than you do my presence, and you're going to produce a meekness and a gratitude in you. You will treat everyone different when you're wounded by my tender mercy over your life and failure. You know, it's Jesus gave them these truths in the upper room, you know, in Matthew, John 15, 16, the passage we're looking at, before they failed. Because if you get these truths before you failed, it's a, lot of, it's a lot easier to believe them after you failed. But if you failed, hear these truths go, ah, it's too good to be true. You want to get them now. Somebody says, well, it's too late. I already did some failure. Okay, let's not worry about that right now. But my point is, go deep in these truths now. Go deep in it. You're going to need these truths. We're entering, and I believe, the generation the Lord returns will be the most lawless, perverse, dark hour of human history, generation of human history. There'll be more temptation, seduction, darkness, demonic power, and there will be people stumbling and failing. And Jesus is saying, get anchored in what I said. The Father's house, I prepared a place for you that's secure. I've done it. It's reliable. I'm coming for you, and I desire you. Get those truths deeply locked into your heart. Paragraph D. Just going to mention this real quick. And Matthew chapter 15, 18, Jesus talks about if a brother sins, go to him and privately and try to win him. What happens often when a brother sins, we go to someone else and tell them about the brother who sinned. Jesus, no, no, don't do it that way. Go to him privately and don't go to your brother privately to accuse him. Like, hey, I caught you, I know. Go try to win him to walking in fresh obedience with the Lord. And my point isn't to break that down on how we go to people. My point is this. This is how Jesus comes to us. In our sin over the years, he comes to us privately. He doesn't even bring someone else. Think of how many things you've thought or done over years that he didn't bring anybody else. He came privately to you to win you. So he's telling us to treat others like he treats us. This is a revelation of how he approaches us. I mean, this is beautiful. He's the God of the second chance a thousand times. Again, the, the Micah 7, uh, 18. He delights in showing mercy. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He delights in showing mercy. Let's have the uh, worship team come on up if you would. In paragraph E. You've got to understand this one point, paragraph E, and you can just read it a little bit on yourself. There's a difference between rebellion and spiritual immaturity. A spiritually, a sincere believer that's spiritually immature, I don't care what age they are in the natural, but they're sincere, 
but they're spiritually immature. They will do some of the same activities as the rebellious person will. And at a glance, outwardly, you say, well, they look the same. The Lord says, no, no, they're very different. I'm angry at persistent rebellion, and I have tenderness towards spiritual immaturity. Yes, I'm going to deal with the area, and I want them to stop it, but I delight in the friendship and the relationship I have with them. I view them differently. It's like if you have a big mud hole there, the pig runs straight to it. You get the pig out, you look the other way, the pig runs right back to the mud hole. The sheep are going across the path. They get stuck, and they're kicking to get out. They're, they're both in the mud, but one of them's trying to get out, and the other one isn't. And Jesus told us in Luke 15 how he feels of the prodigal son. This is somebody in the family. We always tell the prodigal son story about the unbeliever, how God has compassion. This was a guy in the family that wasted the family resources and privileges and dishonored the family, but he came back. And Jesus is, Luke 15, he's, he's telling this story to the tax gatherers and the, and the harlots. They're right in front of him. But the Pharisees are there too, if you read Luke 15. And he's looking at him, he says, let me tell you what the God of Israel's like. When that prodigal comes back, he looks right at the Pharisees, the father runs in compassion and kisses and hugs and rejoices. That's what my father does when one of his children turn their mind back to live in a spirit of obedience. That's how he looks at us. Well, amen and amen. Let's just stand before the Lord. I love to say this last thing. Just go ahead, yeah. I love to say this. It's one of my favorite sentences. We have it made. We really do. We really do have it made. I mean, life is challenging. We, you know, some decades of challenge, billions of years in this reality. Billions of years. I don't like the challenges, but I believe these four truths, these four core truths of verse 2 and verse 3. Father, here we are before you. We say you're the God who delights in mercy. Micah 7, 18, you delight in mercy. Wash us with the water of the word. I ask you to wash us. Better is one day Come and wash us house. in the water of the word. Better is one day we love your leadership, Jesus. Elsewhere. Better is one day in your courts. Better is one day in your house. Better is one day in your courts. Thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in your prison. Better is one day in your courts. One day in your house. I want to pray for anybody that would like prayer tonight. You're saying the enemy is attacking me. I mean, he's accusing all of us. But I would like some people to join me in prayer. I'm going to break this off of my mind. I agree. And I'm going to say your words. But I'd like some people praying with me. I mean, everyone in the room, the enemy attacks us with accusation. But sometimes it's just you're overwhelming. You're saying, I just need a reprieve today. I need peace today. Just come stand on the front line here or the second line behind you. Lord, I ask you to wash us with the water of your word. I'm going to ask a bunch of folks in the room if you would just come on down. Whether you're visiting or you live here, just put your hand.
hand on their shoulder. You don't even have to say anything out loud if you don't want to. Just say, Lord, give them more. Touch them. We're doing this. Lord, we love your leadership. You are the God of the second chance. A thousand times the second chance. We love your leadership, Jesus. Come and wash hearts tonight. prepared a place for me Jesus I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for, for I me. have prepared a place Jesus it's reliable it's finished that. it's done you have prepared a place for because me. I want you with me Jesus I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for wash me. our minds with the water Jesus, of the word Lord. I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for me. I believe in our Lord, come like wind and come like fire. Have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe Can anybody else want to come down and pray for folks? Just put your hand you on their shoulder. Just pray for, for people for a minute or two and then pray Jesus, for the next person. I believe in I see that. You have prepared a place for me. Let your fire me. come, Lord. Let your fire come. Jesus, I believe in I see one day. One day in your house, More, Lord. better is one day More of your manifest presence in this room. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day in your house, better is one day in your courts. More, Lord, release your fire, release your power in this room right now, Lord. Better is one day in your courts, better is one day. You have prepared a place for me. I take authority over Jesus, lies of the enemy. Believe in the spirit of accusation, that. condemnation, you and shame. I say no me. more. We're done with shame Jesus, in this house. We're done with shame in this house. You have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see that. You have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see that. You have prepared a place for me. More, Lord. Jesus, I believe and I see that. You have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see that I am accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in the beloved. I am accepted. You are mine, says the Lord.
Jesus, Lord. I believe and I, I break see off the power of shame on the mind and the heart. For me. Jesus, I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see that you have prepared a place for me. Jesus, I believe and I see I am accepted in the beloved. You are accepted, that's the truth. I am accepted in the beloved. It is written, I am accepted. I am accepted. It is written, says the Lord. In the
take the light.